This is Dan Fleisch, and this is the first of three podcasts covering Chapter 2 of A Student's Guide to Vectors and Tensors. This podcast covers the first four sections, Section 2.1 on the scalar product, 2.2 on the cross product, 2.3 on the triple scalar product, and 2.4 on the triple vector product. For this podcast, instead of listing the big ideas of each section, I'll tell you what I'm going to talk about in each section because there's a common theme that runs through all four of these. For each of these sections, I'll talk about the particular operation that's contained in that section, and I'll say a little bit about why it's useful, and then I'll be very specific about how you do the operation. What mechanism do you use to find the dot product or the cross product between two vectors? Then I'll talk about the physical or geometrical interpretation of this particular operation, that is, what it means to do this to these two or more vectors. There's a little introductory paragraph to this chapter that just reminds you that you've already seen two vector operations. One is adding vectors. That's described in Chapter 1. And as you may remember, you can do it graphically by the head-to-tail method, or you can do it by finding the components and adding them. Likewise, in Chapter 1, I talked about how you multiply a vector by a scalar, which is one of the other useful vector operations. The first four sections of this chapter deal with ways of multiplying vectors by other vectors. For 2.1 and 2.2, that will involve multiplying two vectors. For 2.3 and 2.4, it'll involve multiplying three vectors. So starting with Section 2.1, the scalar product or dot product, The first paragraph in this section explains why this is useful. For one thing, the dot product, or the scalar product, allows you to find the projection of one vector onto another. Why is that useful? Well, think about the concept of work in physics. You may remember work is force times distance. turns out that's a correct definition under very specialized circumstances. But a far more general definition involves, first of all, finding the component of the force along the displacement and multiplying those two together. So instead of simply saying force times distance, it's really the projection of the force vector into the direction of the displacement multiplied by the magnitude of the displacement. As it turns out, that is exactly what the scalar product allows you to do. And you can see how to do that by looking on page 26, the top equation on this page, equation 2.1, says that if you've got the Cartesian, that is x, y, and z components of two vectors, a and b, then a dot b is simply the product of the x components added to the product of the y components added to the product of the z components. Now it may turn out that instead of knowing the components, you know the magnitude of each vector and you know the angle between them. We'll call that theta. In that case, you can find the dot product using equation 2.2, which is simply the magnitude of A times the magnitude of B times the cosine of the angle between them. Either of those two methods can be used to find the dot product, and in a minute you're going to see how using them together is actually quite useful in finding the angle between two vectors. Before we get into that, I'll say a little bit about the geometrical interpretation of this, which you can understand by looking at figure 2.1 on the bottom of page 26. There are two vectors, A and B. A is a little shorter than B, and there's an angle theta between them. Now look at the B part of the figure. If you imagine projecting A using the light and shadow analogy from Chapter 1, if you like, there's the part of A laying along B, which is the projection of A onto B, which is the magnitude of A times the cosine of theta. 
That's because the magnitude of A is the hypotenuse of that little triangle. If you then multiply that by the magnitude of B, you've got the magnitude of A times the magnitude of B times cosine theta. Well, that's exactly what we said the dot product is. So in doing the dot product between these two vectors, what you've really done is projected one onto the direction of the other and then multiplied that by the magnitude of the other vector. Now you might say, yeah, but what if I had done B projected onto the direction of A? You could have done that and you would have gotten exactly the same answer. Turns out that A dot B and B dot A give you exactly the same answer. So when I hear dot product or scalar product, my first thought is projecting vectors onto other vectors' directions. This might be really useful not only for something like finding the work done by projecting force onto the direction of a displacement, might also be useful, for example, to find the component of a vector normal to a surface. Maybe you've seen this before, maybe not. If you haven't, you don't know what this means. That's okay. You'll see examples of this in a later chapter. But imagine you've got the unit normal vector, n hat. That's a unit vector. It has a length of 1, and it always shows you the direction perpendicular to the surface. Now imagine that you've got some vector a, and you want to know what part of a is perpendicular to the surface. An easy way to do that is to take a dot n hat. Why? Because then you get the magnitude of A times the magnitude of N hat, which is just 1, times the cosine of the angle between A and the normal to the surface. So what you're doing is you're projecting the vector A onto the normal to the surface. And since N hat has a magnitude of 1, this gives you exactly what you want, which in this case is the magnitude of A times the cosine of the angle between A and the normal to the surface. You can also use the dot product to find the angle between two vectors, as I mentioned earlier. Look on page 27 at equation 2.3. There's a dot b written both ways on opposite sides of an equal sign. So you've got magnitude of a, magnitude of b cosine theta, equals the sum of the product of each of the components. But if you divide both sides of that equal sign by the magnitude of a times the magnitude of b, you're left with cosine theta equals axbx plus ayby plus azbz divided by the product of the magnitudes. Which means you can find the angle theta simply by taking the arc cosine of both sides, as is done in equation 2.4. So this is a really handy way. If you've got two vectors and you know their components, you can easily find their dot product using the AXBX plus AYBY plus AZBZ approach. You can find the magnitude of each vector simply by squaring and summing all of its components and taking the square root. And therefore, you can get the argument of that arc cosine in equation 2.4 rather easily. When you then take the arc cosine, you get the angle between the vectors. And there's an example there for two vectors a and b in which I show you how this works out. The last note in this section says that if you take any unit vector and you dot it into itself, you automatically get one. Why? Well, let's do i hat dot i hat, for example. i hat has a length of one. That's why it's a unit vector. Therefore, the magnitude of i hat times the magnitude of i hat is one. And the cosine of theta in this case, theta is the angle between the two vectors, but we're doing i hat as both vectors, so the angle is 0. Cosine of 0 is 1, so i hat dot i hat, or any unit vector dotted into itself, must give you 1.
But if you've got an orthogonal, that is a perpendicular vector dotted into i hat or j hat or k hat, you must get zero. Why? Because that cosine of theta, when the angle is 90 degrees, turns out to give you zero. So i hat dot i hat and j hat dot j hat and k hat dot k hat all give you one. But dot any of those unit vectors into any other perpendicular unit vector and you'll get zero. The next section, section 2.2, deals with a different way of multiplying two vectors. This one's called the cross product, sometimes just called the vector product. This is a useful operation to do for several kinds of problems. Those involving torque or the effect of a magnetic field on a charged particle are two examples in which the cross product comes into play. How do you find the cross product? Take a look at the top of page 28. You'll see in equation 2.5 that if you know the x, y, and z components of both vector a and vector b, you can find the cross product using those terms. That is ayBz minus azby times i hat plus the other two terms, one times j hat, one times k hat. Well, the first thing to notice about this is that this gives you a vector result. When we did the dot product in the previous section, there were no i hat, j hat, k hat in the answer because the answer was a scalar. That's one reason it's called the scalar product. But in this case, the cross product gives you a vector as a result, so it must have a direction, and that directional information is contained in the fact that there's a component in front of i hat, and a component in front of j hat, and a component in front of k hat. Now, there's a nice convenient way to write this, which is shown in equation 2.6, in which in the determinant, you simply write i hat, j hat, k hat across the top, the components of vector a on the middle row, and the components of vector b in the bottom row. If you haven't seen matrices and determinants before and you don't know what that is, there is a review of this on the book's website to help you understand that. But the exact same information is contained in equation 2.5 and 2.6. Okay, so if the result of the A cross B operation is a vector, what direction does that vector point? Well, you can figure it out for any individual case by looking at the I hat, J hat, K hat components. But the most general statement is this. The direction of A cross B is always perpendicular to both A and B. Remember, you can always define a plane by any two vectors. Imagine two vectors, draw the plane between them. The cross product A cross B must be perpendicular to that plane. That automatically makes it perpendicular both to vector A and to vector B. But you might say that there are two directions perpendicular to that plane. How do you know which one? The answer is the right-hand rule. There are a lot of different ways to understand the right-hand rule. I tend to use the method of using an open palm with your thumb perpendicular to your hand and pushing the first vector into the second vector using the palm of your right hand so that your thumb shows you the direction of the cross product. There's an alternative approach to doing the right hand rule that you can see on the top of page 29 in figure 2.2. Notice in the upper left portion of that figure, there's a hand-drawn hand showing a person pointing their index finger in the direction of A, the first vector in the cross product, putting their middle finger, again this has to be the right hand, in the direction of B, the second vector in the cross product, and the thumb, which you have to hold up away from the other two fingers, shows you the direction of A cross B. That's the same direction that you would have gotten by pushing A into B using the open palm approach, but whichever one is easier for you is the one you should remember. Some people like to curl their fingers of their right hand from A toward B 
and then use their thumb perpendicular to that. So you can see in figure 2, too, that if you push vector A into vector B, you always go through the smaller angle between them, by the way. So in this case, theta, you don't go the long way around. You push A into B, and your thumb shows you A cross B going straight up the page in this case. Imagine had you pushed B into A. You would have to turn your hand over to do that, and then pushing B into A would give you a vector downward below the plane. Or likewise, had you put your index finger along B and your middle finger along A, your thumb had to be pointing down. So the vector B cross A must be in the opposite direction of vector A cross B. And if you look back for a minute on page 28 at the very bottom, equation 2.7, there it says A cross B is equal to minus B cross A. In the case of the dot product, it didn't matter which vector went first. A dot B is exactly the same as B dot A. It's a scalar. But in the case of A cross B, the vector result is in the opposite direction if you switch the order of the two vectors in the cross product. Another handy expression, if you just need to know the magnitude of the cross product, is equation 2.8 on page 29. There you see that the magnitude of A cross B is the magnitude of A times the magnitude of B times the sine of the angle between them. That turns out to be handy in a lot of applications. We'll see some of those in a minute. So what is the geometric interpretation of the cross product? To understand that, look at figure 2.3 also on page 29. If you notice, A and B are now drawn as the sides of a parallelogram. There are some dashed lines there showing you a parallelogram in the plane of A cross B. Notice there's also a smaller dashed line that is the height of that parallelogram. Well, if you look at the angle theta and the vector B is the hypotenuse and that smaller dashed line is the opposite side, you can see that the height of the parallelogram is the magnitude of B times the sine of theta. Therefore, if I take that height times the length of the base, I get the area of the parallelogram. But the length of the base is the magnitude of A, the height is the magnitude of B sine theta, as shown in equation 2.8. So what the cross product gives you is the area of the parallelogram formed by those two vectors. Another way to say that is that the cross product, the A cross B, which is the vector shown going straight up the page, has a length equal to the area of the parallelogram and a direction perpendicular to the plane of that parallelogram. So what does it mean if A and B are in the same direction? It must mean that the cross product A cross B is zero. You can understand that a number of ways. One way to think of it is the parallelogram has no area. Another way is that the magnitude of A times the magnitude of B, if they're in the same direction, when you multiply those two magnitudes by sine theta, that is sine zero degrees, that's zero. So if the vectors are parallel or anti-parallel, the cross product must be zero. And when is the cross product the greatest? When sine theta is the greatest. If you fix the length of A and fix the length of B, the way to get the cross product the greatest is to make sine of theta 1, as big as sine ever gets, which means that theta must be 90 degrees. So two perpendicular vectors have the biggest cross product that they can have, and two parallel or anti-parallel vectors have zero cross product. Then there are a set of equations, 2.9 on page 30, showing what happens if you cross the Cartesian unit vectors with themselves and other vectors. As you might expect, any one cross itself, since the angle is zero, is zero. But I cross J gives you K hat, for example. Likewise, J hat cross K hat gives you I hat. 
So that's one way to see that this is a right-handed coordinate system. If you take the unit vectors in sequence, i cross j or j cross k or k cross i because it wraps back around, you get positive cross product. Whereas if you take them in the other order, that is j cross i or k cross j or i cross k, you get a result that is the negative of the next vector in the sequence. The last paragraph points out that in the case of torque problems, the cross product between R and F gives you the torque. And in magnetic force problems, the cross product between a particle's velocity and the magnetic field strength is proportional to the force on the particle. The next section, section 2.3, beginning on page 30, talks about the triple scalar product, which is simply the combination of the dot product and the vector cross product that have been talked about in the previous two sections. You can see it written down toward the bottom of the page. The triple scalar product is A dot B cross C. Notice the parentheses have to be around the B cross C. It says there in the footnote, if you tried to make this expression with the parentheses around the A dot B, it would make no sense. Because A dot B is a scalar, and then the cross product would be trying to cross a scalar into a vector, and we need two vectors to go into the cross product. So the parentheses are always around the B cross C, as you might imagine. How do you actually compute this triple scalar product? That's shown on page 31 in equation 211. Equation 210 just builds up to that by first doing B cross C and then dotting A into that result, and the result is 211. A dot B cross C involves AX times the X component of B cross C plus AY times the Y component of B cross C and AZ times the Z component of B cross C. Turns out that this is really handy to write if you put it in a determinant with A's components in the top row, B's components in the middle row, and C's components in the bottom row. Again, equation 212 gives you the exact same information as 211. The geometrical interpretation of the triple scalar product is nice. If you look at figure 2.4 on the bottom of page 31, you'll see that B and C, as done in the previous section, are shown as the sides of a parallelogram we know that the area of that is B cross C. But now look at the A part. Instead of just imagining a parallelogram in the BC plane, now imagine a parallelopiped. That means a three-dimensional object in which A, B, and C are all sides. Now if you take that B cross C area of the base and multiply it by A cosine phi, you get the height of the parallelopiped multiplied by the area of the base, which is the volume of the parallelopiped. And that's exactly what the triple scalar product gives you, where B cross C gives you a vector pointing straight up the page, and A is at an angle phi to that vector. Then the magnitude of A times the magnitude of B cross C times cosine of phi gives you the triple scalar product. So just as the cross product gives you the area of a parallelogram, the triple scalar product, A dot B cross C, gives you the volume of the parallelopiped formed by A and B and C. One nice application of the triple scalar product is talked about on the top of page 32. That application is as a test to see if three vectors are coplanar. If you read the part of the previous chapter dealing with basis vectors, you'll know that at times it matters whether three vectors are coplanar. That is, do they all lie in the same plane or not? Well, it turns out that if A dot B cross C is zero, you can be sure that the vectors all do lie in the same plane. 
But if the triple scalar product A dot B cross C is not zero, then they don't. You can understand that by looking back on page 31. Imagine the case where A dot B cross C is zero. That means A has no component in the B cross C direction. Well, how can A have no component in the B cross C direction? It must lie in the same plane as B and C. That is, it must be at a 90 degree angle with respect to the vector B cross C. Another way to say it is, phi must be 90 degrees. Therefore, A dot B cross C equals zero is both a necessary and a sufficient condition for three vectors to lie in the same plane. The last part of this section just talks about the fact that you can cyclically permute the vectors and the triple vector product does not change, which some authors state as the ability to interchange the dot and the cross. So A dot B cross C is the same as A cross B dot C. And as it mentions at the very end of this section, there is an application for the triple scalar product that you will run into if you choose to push into Chapter 4 and read about reciprocal vectors. The last section in this podcast, Section 2.4, begins on page 32, and it talks about the triple vector product. Now, the triple scalar product involved vectors A, B, and C in a way that two of the vectors were crossed and then one was dotted into the result. In this case, there are two cross products. So it's A cross the quantity B cross C. And you should note carefully that the location of the parentheses does matter because both A cross B as a quantity cross C and A cross the quantity B cross C are valid expressions, but they do not give you the same answer. So what answer do you get when you do this triple vector product? Look at the top of page 33, equation 214. There's a very handy rule which says that the triple vector product A cross the quantity B cross C is the vector B times the scalar A dot C minus the vector C times the scalar A dot B. We call this the back minus cab rule just to help remember the order of the terms, but it's up to you to remember where the dots go in that expression. So if you're going to calculate the triple vector product of A cross the quantity B cross C, you simply have to do a dot product between A and C and a dot product between A and B and take each of those and multiply them by either B or C and that gives you the result. Notice that this is a vector result. Specifically, it's a vector result that is a combination of a scaled version of vector B minus a scaled version of vector C. You can understand that by looking at figure 2.5 on the bottom of page 33. You'll see in this figure vectors B and C define that plane that I've drawn there, and vector A is coming out a little bit toward you and up above the plane. First, imagine taking B cross C. That's what's in the parentheses. That gives you the vector B cross C, once again, shown sticking straight up the page. Now imagine taking the cross product of A and that vector B cross C. Using the right-hand rule, you push A into vector B cross C, and you get a result which is laying down again in the same plane that B and C define. So A cross the quantity B cross C gives you a vector back in the plane of B and C. And what that means is that by properly scaling B and C, I should be able to make the result of the triple vector product. 
And that's exactly what equation 214, the back minus cab rule, tells you. And if you want to know how much to scale vector b by, just do a dot c. And if you want to know how much to scale vector c by, do a dot b. So this is a way to understand that the result of the triple vector product is another vector lying in the plane of the two vectors within the parentheses in the triple vector product. Now how you go from A cross the quantity B cross C into the back cab rule takes a little bit of doing, and I've shown that derivation on page 34. I tried not to put too many of these kinds of derivations in the book, but I thought this one was important to give you a little bit of exposure to how you manipulate these vectors and also to show you an important step which occurs on page 34. Start at the top with equation 215. We've, first of all, we're doing A cross B cross C by writing I hat, J hat, K hat across the top, then the components of vector A in the middle row, and then the components of the cross product B cross C. That's what B cross C parentheses X, parentheses Y, and parentheses Z means. It means take the X, Y, and Z parts of those. I show what those are in equation 216 and actually write them in in equation 217. Now when you go through from there and do all the cross multiplying and adding and subtracting, you get an expression that looks pretty ugly. It's equation 219. And I can't see anything very familiar within that. But if you add to that a quantity which equals zero, you can actually see something useful. And that quantity is shown on the bottom of page 34. You add one of those expressions to either the top or the middle or the bottom row of equation 219, and now what appears begins to look familiar. Why? Because as shown on the top of page 35, now you get AXCX plus AYCY plus AZCZ all times the X part of B times I hat. And you get similar expressions times the other components of B and C. When you simplify those, as is shown in the next two lines, and then realize that BXI hat plus BYJ hat plus BZK hat is just the vector B, and likewise for vector C, Put all that in, and there is the back minus cab rule. So this derivation is there just to show you how to manipulate the vectors and to indicate that sometimes adding nothing in a very particular form can be a very useful step in a derivation. Okay, the next two sections of this chapter deal with partial derivatives and vectors as derivatives, so those will be the subject of the next podcast.